Maryland's 7th Congressional District contains portions of Howard and Baltimore counties and parts of the city of Baltimore. The seat was held for years by the late Representative Elijah Cummings, a beloved figure in the Jewish community. But the 7th District's leadership in black-Jewish relations started before Cummings came to office, with the same man who fills the seat again today. Our special guest this episode, Congressman and former president of the NAACP, Kwaisi Mfume. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 19 of Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, we have a great show planned with an incredible special guest in Congressman Mfume. So without further ado, why don't you introduce us? Congressman, thanks for coming on the podcast. You've taken your old seat back in the House, succeeding a beloved member in Elijah Cummings, someone who had an especially close relationship with the Jewish community in Baltimore. But what our listeners may not realize is that your relationship with the community goes back decades to something you called the Rat Pack days in an interview last year with Jewish Insider. If you could uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about what the Rat Pack was and how it shaped your relationship with the Jewish community and with Israel. Well, thank you very much for that. You surprised me on that one. Um, (laughs) Let me say a couple of things. First of all, thanks for calling Elijah Cummings' name. Uh, Elijah and I were dear friends for 42 years. And uh, when I was leaving the Congress... Uh, to go head up the NAACP, I could not have thought of a better person uh, to get elected and to serve than Elijah. There were 20-some people that ran that year, and he was able to prevail. And I I was there the day that Newt Gingrich swore him in on the floor, myself and former Congressman Perrin Mitchell. And we both hugged Elijah that day, and we knew, since Perrin had served before me and I had served before Elijah, we knew that the seat was going to be in good hands. And lo and behold, uh, you couldn't have asked for a better public servant. So I appreciate you you're calling his name. Um, the Rat Pack, if I can use that terminology and not get sued by MGN, uh, <laughs> goes back to when Howard Friedman, uh, myself, uh, a guy by the name of Larry Max, Philip Klein, um, and uh, Dave Shapiro, we're all sort of finding a way to cut our teeth politically. I was uh, a member of the city council. Uh, Howard uh, came on board through uh, his uh, efforts to support me. And uh, we just all kind of grew up together, uh, understanding um, our different backgrounds and our ways. And I got a chance to better understand uh, Howard and, and Larry and, and, and David and the others, and they got a better chance to understand me. So we were always working on mutual uh, issues in the black and Jewish communities. And like I said, that was the early 1980s. But actually prior to that, uh, when I was a teenager growing up in West Baltimore, um, there was a, day, name, a guy by the name of Dave Potish who owned a grocery store on the corner across from our house. Uh, He and his wife, Hannah, and his son, Samuel, all lived above the grocery store. And in those days, uh, that's how it was. We're talking about the 1960s now. Um, And so, ironically, we all played together in the streets. And uh, Mr. David was like a dad to all of us. He used to extend credit to my mom. I had a 
a single mom who was working to uh, keep food on the table for four kids. It was a genuine sort of community. This is long before the riots and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And so when I was, uh, I guess, 14 years old, um, Mr. David, Mr. Potter said to me, uh, how would you like to have a job? And I said, whoa, <laughs> I could have a job. He said, yeah, I'm going to hire you and Sammy, Samuel, to uh, keep the store clean and to stock the shelves uh, and to bring stuff up from the basement. And I said, absolutely. And he hired me. And that really was my first job. Now, I didn't know what I was doing at that age, except I was a flunky. Whatever he needed done, I did it. Samuel did it. And uh, at the end of the week, we would count our money, which wasn't a lot. Um, And then we would go back into the store and buy something. So we kept a circular flow of income going on. But one day um, I was sweeping up and I could not find uh, Mr. Pottage. He was upstairs and I called and he he didn't hear me. So I started up the steps with a room in my hand because I had to ask him something about a product that we had run out of. And I saw him on the edge of the bed. It was a very hot July day. And he always kept his shirts, his white shirts, buttoned at the wrist. This day, he actually had his sleeves rolled up. And I saw a marking on his arm. And I said to him innocently, oh, Mr. David, I didn't know you were in the Navy. I thought these were naval tattoos. It's, you know, I grew up with the Popeye era. And that's what Navy uh, sailors wore. And he looked at me and something was different, and I couldn't tell what it was, and he didn't say anything. And the longer he looked at me, tears welled up in his eyes, and I didn't know what I had done or what I had said, and so I just said, I'm sorry, and started to go back down the steps. He said, no, come in here, uh, sit down, I want to tell you something, and he began to tell me uh, about the Holocaust and the fact that— It was a tattoo on his arm, that's from the Holocaust— Exactly. Exactly. They were numbers that he was branded. And um, he began to tell me about the Holocaust, which was hard for me to conceive because it was hard enough for me to understand slavery at 14 years of age and how people could do this to other people. And I began to hear those stories. It was like slavery times five. And the fact that so many, many people were murdered. Um, And he told me how he had gotten into this country with a little bit of money, uh, that he and his wife, Hannah, started the store. And um, I knew that I had touched a nerve, and I didn't really know what it was. But he began to tell me about uh, the Jewish exodus and how the homeland was established in 1948 and why it meant so much. So I got up after he'd finished. He wiped the tears from his eyes. He rolled his sleeve back down the way he always kept it. And uh, I went downstairs and um, did not really comprehend it until much later in life, um, until I got a chance to go to Auschwitz um, in the, um, I think, the early 1980s. And I walked under that big arch sign and walked inside past the suitcases of shaved hair and shoes and all the memorabilia, and then went in and touched the actual ovens. And I understood then in a way that I have never understood before what that must have been like. So I always assumed and have made the association that those were the two greatest evils that I could think of 
uh, perpetrated on mankind and that tolerance and the lack of tolerance creates those kinds of situations. So I don't want to bore you with that, but, um, no, you're not. You're not. Congressman, you're not boring. That that yeah. I think I I speak for all listeners. We got goosebumps listening to that story. So, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you for that. That's uh, wow. It's hard to follow that, but uh, Congressman, I wanted to ask you. We Rich and I have been talking a lot lately about, particularly the sort of progressive wing of the Democratic Party. I'm a, I'm a centrist Democrat, um, and uh, Rich fancies himself a centrist Republican, I think. And I, we like to think of ourselves as the voices of, of sanity and moderation sometimes. But the the leftward uh, tilt of, of some in the Democratic Party and some of the, the fissures have, that have sort of opened a little between maybe the pro-Israel community and some in the, the, left, the left wing of the, of the Democratic Party. What do you make of it and what can uh, the pro-Israel community do at this stage of the game, there's obviously a lot of contentious issues. There's negotiations on Iran. There's the Palestinian issue. Um, what 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 should we be doing? What can we be doing? And, and how do you assess it? Well, it's a lot different than it was when I left the Congress. Let's start with that, because I left in 96. Um, there was still room to talk, room to negotiate and room to disagree. Um, a lot of that room and that space has closed up over time. And um, there are extreme views uh, that exist in the House, both the House and the Senate. Um, and those extreme views, in my opinion, say to me one thing, that most people are not on the far right or the far left. Most people are in the middle. That's where you govern from and that's where you make progress from. And so coming into the House of Representatives, that was a, I was taught that. That's how... You went about things. It didn't mean that you gave up your principles. You continued to fight for them. But at the end of the day, you have to find some sort of way to have consensus in order to be able to move something forward. Consensus is a lot more elusive uh, these days in many respects. And you ask, what do I make of it? I, I don't know what to make of it, except that um, when we become ourselves now less tolerant with a process that is less tolerant, we're just as bad as all those people that created the situations that we were previously talking about, because you don't tolerate somebody, you don't tolerate different ideas, and you don't tolerate different religions and beliefs. You just believe that things have to be one way. And I'm old enough to know that there are more than two sides even to every story. So it's a different kind of Congress. And um, I don't know where we're headed. I'd like to think I know, but I, I really, really don't know. When I see what's going on on both far sides of the spectrum, um, that that leads to chaos and it leads to, I think, misunderstanding, but more importantly, it leads to distrust. Yeah, Congressman, for, for what it's worth, uh, Rich and I were, uh, when we were talking about starting this podcast, uh, the first episode was the week after the January 6th attack. And we consider it our act of patriotism to have a conversation where we disagree on pretty much everything, but to have it in a, a civil and thoughtful way on, on the merits. And so we thank you for leading from the center and from helping to govern from the center. So thank you for that. Well, I hope I'm in the center. The center has shifted so much. <laughs> I don't know. I may have to just stick my hand in the air and see which way the wind is blowing. But 
it is it is very very different and it's very difficult and particularly on the issue of of Israel you know I was born the year that Israel got its independent statehood and started its modern day existence in 1948 and I've watched over the years the Suez Canal crisis that took place I believe in 1956 in that instance where Israel was more of the aggressor attacking Egypt and then I remember the 1967 Six-Day War uh, and how Israel had to prevail against great odds to be able to win that, which they did in in six days. And that led to the capture of the Golan Heights and the uh, Sinai Peninsula, Um, the Yom Kippur War of 1973. I mean, so history, modern history is littered uh, with a lot of different things that have taken place. Uh, all the way up to now where we have the Abraham Accords and uh, the understanding that there are governments in the region who want peace. And so whether it was the UAE or anyone else, we see that happening. I believe that there has to be a two-state solution, and I believe the two-state solution is worked out like any other solution where the principles find a way to guarantee certain things. Uh, The Palestinians, in my opinion, deserve a homeland and a state. Uh, The Israelis deserve, in my hand, in my opinion, uh, borders that are safe and secure. Uh, It's all the outside noise that gets in the middle of that that makes it more difficult. And so whether we're talking about Iran, which continues to sponsor terrorism throughout the Middle East, or Hamas and others who may not be the legitimate voice they claim to be for the Palestinians, I just know that the Palestinian people and the Israeli people have got to find some sort of way to have that two-state solution because all the incidences that I've talked about in just the last 72 years will continue to go on well into the future. And I think a lot of our listeners probably are familiar with uh, the Elijah Cummings Youth Leadership Program in Israel, uh, but I believe you actually founded its predecessor with then-Congressman Ben Cardin. Is that is that right? That is right. Um, the late Mickey Leland, who represented uh, Texas, who died, uh, unfortunately, in a plane crash attempting to deliver food in Africa, had started a program in Houston called Operation Understanding, where he worked to get young black kids and young Jewish kids uh, to work together, to spend time together over a summer, uh, to get to know each other through the winter, and then to go, as a result of those relationships, to spend time in both Israel and in Western Africa, with the premise being that they would come back as ambassadors and go through high schools the following year, talking about the fact that, yes, there are different cultures uh, and, and different groups of people around the country and that they can coexist peacefully. And they themselves would use themselves as the example and talk about uh, what what they've learned. Uh, I was really struck by that when I saw it. And uh, Ben Cardin and I got elected in 1986. Uh, it was Ben Cardin, myself, uh, John Lewis, Nancy Pelosi. We had a good class, to say the least. Um, in 1987, we were all sworn in and Uh, Ben and I thought that we ought to try to replicate that in the greater Baltimore area, which we did uh, for a number of years. Uh, Long story short, you know that I left the Congress to head up the NAACP, and uh, Elijah got the same feeling that I had, only Elijah said, what can we do to make it even better? 
and he and others uh, built on the program its name changed from Operation Understanding to the Elijah Cummings Youth Leadership Program. It's still going on. In fact, I'm the honorary chairman of the board. And um, it's important that that kind of legacy, I think, continue to exist so that people understand that there is a continuum here and there's a long effort to try to get things done. Um, I remember telling Elijah, because he didn't understand my interest in this, and I explained to him that when I was a young city councilman, Um, I was so concerned about the fact that I saw this stratification taking place in Baltimore, black communities versus Jewish communities, et cetera, that I was part of a founding group called the Blues, Blacks and Jews. And the Blues went about the process of breaking down those barriers in communities and getting involved instantly when something got in the news or there was some sort of violence or any sort of thing that would take away from the harmony that we thought was important, particularly for two groups of people who have been so oppressed uh, and racially stratified. And, 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 and we did that, and we did it a number of years. And so I said to Elijah, uh, that's how I got involved and why I thought it was important to start Operation Understanding. And he, like I said, took it to another level, and the program is still in existence today. Congressman, as, as a follow-up to that, we all saw last summer's uh, real reckoning as a country, um, the the death of George Floyd, the marches, uh, the dialogue, but I'm, I was struck by a, a little bit of a divergence and how some in the sort of um, BDS movement or the anti-Israel movement have really sought to co-opt uh, or, or in some way affiliate with the Black Lives Matter movement during those protests and really turn it into something that was uh, a conversation about Israel when, you know, when it really wasn't. And I guess my question to you is, how do you assess that? Uh, obviously, you have a very long pro-Israel record, um, but you also have somebody who has a unrivaled uh, resume and and history as a civil rights leader in this country um, or as one of the preeminent civil rights leaders in this country. How do you how do you assess those two things going on at the same time? And how do we proceed from here as as, you know, Jewish civil rights, pro-Israel actors? Well, uh, it's a very good question and even better observation. Um, There are in our society a lot of people who Um, find a way to create opportunity when they see something happening. And they create the opportunity by uh, being wolves that put on sheep's clothing. And you don't know that they're necessarily among you until they've done most of their damage. Um, I think a lot of people took advantage of the uh, genuinely heartfelt protests on behalf of what we all thought was a horrendous murder of George Floyd. Uh, And there were people of every racial and ethnic groupings, and not just here, but around the globe, standing up to protest that. Uh, In doing that, it was such a moment that was unrehearsed. I think there were others who, and trust me, there were a number of agendas that were starting to creep into the Black Lives movement that had nothing to do with Black Lives. Uh, But they, they found a way to creep in and they mixed messages And it was difficult for persons who are caught up in the movement and the uh, the pureness of the movement to always 
decipher and to say, no, that's not what we're about, or are we really agreeing to the same thing? A lot of that happened with the civil rights movement, and so there are lessons, history lessons here for us. But I just think that um, those persons who are opportunists who wanted to create several different agendas found a way to do it. You also had the defund the police movement, which really did not begin with black lives, but it was rolled in, and now it's almost synonymous in the minds of a lot of people. Uh, and that that really is unfortunate. Um, but here's what I say about BDS. I, I oppose BDS, and I oppose it on legitimate civil rights grounds. I strongly believe in boycott and divestment when it is applicable to a situation that has historically and continues to find a way to oppress people. When we were protesting the de Klerk regime in South Africa, uh, and I started as a young college freshman with the boycott movement on South Africa and continued as a young city councilman with divest our funds from South Africa, we were trying to divest our funds from a hideous regime that had existed for hundreds of years that was not the majority, but rather the minority in South Africa that had oppressed, murdered, killed, and jailed so many South Africans that that was the only way to draw attention to it. Nelson Mandela being locked up for 26 years, the best years of his life, and so many others who felt like they had to stand up, that for those of us outside of the area, the only thing we could do was to say in the United States, boycott South Africa or divest friends from South Africa because, and we could list a long litany of things that were legitimate reasons. That's not the case in the BDS movement as I see it. I understand that there are those who support it who will probably attack me and say, no, it is the same thing. But I've lived long enough and I've been through enough to know that they are two different things. And it has not risen, in my opinion, to the level that the hundreds of years of oppression by the Afrikaners in South Africa against the indigenous population, which was the majority, it's not risen to that level. So to equate the two is it's a slick kind of uh, uh, connection. But for those who were part of the Black Lives Movement and are, this, in my opinion, is something that's totally different. But it got pushed in, put into the mix and now it's difficult for some people to know that it was not originally a part of anything other than the hopes by some people to to bring about uh, divestment and to boycott. So uh, I don't want to oversimplify it. I just believe they're two different things. And, Congressman, uh, we go back to last summer as well. Uh, obviously, by and large, mainstream voices um, – truly dedicated to elevating the issue the moment you talked about nationally. Uh, but but I think in the Jewish community, we were struck by some prominent voices, some celebrities, Nick Cannon, Diddy, Ice Cube, you know, list went on, where you sort of saw some of like the Farrakhan type influence coming out in voices where in sort of this moment uh, of, of the reckoning, as, as Jared said, there were some attacks on the Jewish community, uh, some anti-Semitic remarks. Uh, do you do you feel like there is a, a Farrakhan influence today within the black community? Is it a problem? Uh, is, is it a minority that, that just is vocal? Well, I don't know that it is a problem because I don't know that 
it is widely accepted. I know that a lot of people have very strong pent-up feelings, and a lot of people believe that uh, Farrakhan, rightly or wrongly so, says things that they wish that they could say or takes positions uh, that are strong and required in certain instances. Now, I'm I'm not going to try to get into whether or not Farrakhan is good or bad. I'm just telling you that historically, uh, when you see people do or say or take that position, it's because they believe that he is standing up for them. And in standing up for them, he is elevated in a certain way uh, with a dignity and a respect. And so whether you're Nick Cannon or somebody else and you want to kind of have that edge, uh, not only does it associate you, but it kind of uh, it gives you street cred, if I, for lack of a better term. And um, I think that's going to continue. That's been the case for years. We can go back the last 40 or 50 years. But it wasn't just Farrakhan. It was the message of the Nation of Islam, which was a message of independence. And how it got caught up into anti-Semitic activity or interpretation, I don't know. But the reason why the Nation of Islam is still very, very effective in certain sections of the community is because they are seen as standing up against oppressors. And those oppressors, in, in, in their opinion, is not always Jewish people. But they're oppressors of the people who have the money, who pull the strings, who happen to be white, who happen to be very wealthy, and who happen to care less about oppressing black people. I guess my question would be then, you know, if 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 that's sort of like you said, it gives them an edge to be able to latch on to messaging like that. Is there some sort of an underlying problem then that we need to address in like the the forum of Black Jewish relations? Because when we hear messages like that, you know, we 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 feel this is anti-Semitism. Like we need to respond to this. How can we better educate people that that this is unacceptable? Well, I think what has to be done, and I'm not trying to tell people how to live their lives, I just think there has to be a counterbalance that suggests that there is another way or there are other things that are happening. And I can't, I'm not smart enough to dissect the messages. I can only tell you what the reaction is. And when you look at the number of black people in this country that are still in poverty. When you look at all of the indicators, educational attainment, annual income, wealth possession, property possession, black Americans are still at the bottom of those lists. And the the sort of discriminations that takes place in housing and in a number of different areas, very few people are standing up and speaking out against that. And I think the way you take the edge off is that Jewish Americans ought to be just as outraged and will stand up and speak out about those sort of things. Uh, In the absence of that, there will be other voices that stand up and say, this is wrong and that's wrong and we're with you and someone else is not with you. And I don't think you assuage the feelings of the people who tend to be those who react unless you appear to be on their side or understanding or a partner in trying to reduce the number of indicators that suggest that after all these many, many, many years, black oppression in this country continues in a different sort of way. It's not 
well, it was in the case of George Floyd. It's not the outright murder uh, like it was with Emmett Till until we saw George Floyd. But it is, in many respects, something that people live with every day, every day. And I drive through communities uh, that are hurting. I walk through those communities. I spend time in those communities. And people are looking for allies. And the allies that they have uh, tend not to always be Jewish allies, but rather people who take very strong, hard positions. Um, and they they gravitate toward that. And I, I understand that. Congressman, on Israel, we talked a lot about the joint session of Congress, the address by Prime Minister Netanyahu back in 2015, opposing President Obama's signature foreign policy initiative. Uh, a lot of people, myself included, think that that was sort of one of the defining moments where the tension between uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Obama had had finally reached a fever pitch. Um, do you think that members of the Congressional Black Caucus sort of would agree with that? Uh, and do you think that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, no longer being the prime minister, presents an opportunity to sort of reset that relationship, particularly with members of the Democratic Party in general and the members of the Congressional Black Caucus in particular? Well, if you could restate the first part of your question, do members of the caucus generally agree with what? with with the fact that this was sort of a low point, uh, but in the relationship between the Democratic Party and the Israeli government, uh, the the Netanyahu government, when he came and, and gave that speech and didn't give President Obama a heads up, and and then spoke to a, a session really with half the chamber there because it was not done in a bipartisan fashion. It, it was a low point. I was not in the Congress at that time, and I watched like everybody else, but it clearly was a low point. Um, I have my own issues with Netanyahu. I think that uh, his approach oftentimes was too strident, and he became larger than life for everybody uh, in this country who was watching the foreign relations between our two countries. Um, you know, I... I remember Teddy Kollek, and when I went to visit him in, uh, in, in Jerusalem years ago, and you could be strong and strident, but if you had a certain side of you that people thought was caring and sensitive, you usually got accepted. I never saw that in Netanyahu. I know that Donald Trump uh, and he you know, continued to sort of orchestrate their joint themes while that was going on on that stage, though, everybody else who was off stage and was watching it just felt like this is deteriorating and this is getting to a point where uh, it's not going to get better. And fortunately, um, and this is my opinion, that both Netanyahu and Mr. Trump are no longer in power. Um, but, yeah, it was a real, real low. We just had a primary election in New York City for mayor. Um, Eric Adams looks like he will be the second African-American mayor in New York City history. Uh, we have Chicago being run by Lori Lightfoot. I guess what ultimately, by many commentators' estimations, drove the end of the mayor's race in New York City was the issue of public safety. And as a, as a person who's been active in the civil rights movement for a very long time, I wonder how these mayors, uh, particularly Mayor Adams, will be able to deliver on this very real concern of public safety and very real historical concern of civil rights. And how do we have both of those things coexist at the same time? And, and can he do it? 
And can any mayor do it? Well, I think he can do it. Um, and I'll go out and say I think he will do it. Um, one of the things that it's important to note, maybe this is a good time to point it out, is that um, the black community is just like any other community. I mean, and black people like myself, we're just like anybody else. Most of us are average. Uh, we have a few geniuses and a liberal sprinkling of fools. I mean, if we apply that to every racial group, right. then we start out on an even accord. And when we start out on that accord, we have to assume that black people in cities and elsewhere are just as concerned about their public safety, about their well-being, about what happens with their children. Will they get an education about being able to live in a safe, a secure surrounding? No one embraces violence whatsoever. And this is where I, again, go back to what I said earlier, how the messages can get mixed up sometimes. Because you would believe that um, black people, if uh, certain people said this, would just we're just fine with crime in our neighborhoods. We're just fine uh, living in inferior housing and having fewer opportunities. Well, we're not. And this surge is no different, in my opinion, from the surge in 1993. In fact, it's almost identical, the surge in crime and murders in urban areas. And in that year, every public opinion poll that was done uh, questioning this issue of crime had support by at least 75 to 80 percent of black Americans, no matter what poll it was. They were concerned, just like everybody else, that something be done. And so Mayor-elect Adams, I think, understands that. Uh, he said, and I've listened to him before, that we don't have to sacrifice our public safety for our justice and our personal sense of who we are. So it's a delicate balance to try to do both. But, you know, this is a society of law. Uh, we've got to find a way to live together, and we've got to make sure that people are not abused uh, by police officers who take their duty, unfortunately, the wrong way. And yet at the same time, we should not fear having police among us who are protecting our communities and our lives. Uh, many of us have police officers in our families. And so we've got to stay away, I think, from the larger characterization of law enforcement and to make sure that we have standards in place, that we will not tolerate certain things, but we do welcome secure communities. And we have to do that. And the mayor's bully pulpit is the first place for that to be ushered in and talked about. The Ohio 11th. Next month, Chantel Brown is facing off against Nina Turner for Marsha Fudge's seat. Uh, a lot of people are billing it as a, a race of the moderates versus the far left. Jim Clyburn's involved. Hillary Clinton and the political harm of the, of the CBC are supporting Brown. AOC, Bernie Sanders are, and the squad are supporting Turner. Uh, is it that important? And who are you supporting? Well, I'm not supporting either one. So maybe okay. that makes me the oddball. Um, I don't know either one. I, okay. I'd like to get to know both of them, but, you know, the election is just about here. So I haven't chosen to support anybody. I'd like to support people who I know, right. uh, not people who I think I know. And so for me, the better thing here is to let the voters decide. Uh, I think they're both very well qualified. And as you said, they have uh, uh, their own set of endorsements. Um, but elections are won by having people to believe in you not to have and not by having people endorse you. Um, when this is all over, when the smoke clears um, on one side or the other, there's going to have to be some amending and some 
um, uh, handing out of carrots to sort of wound, heal over the wounds and to bring us to the point where we can govern together. One of them will be elected. I don't know which one, but uh, I'm not I'm not in that race. And I think more than anything else, I just want the best candidate to come forward. And I think and trust the voters of Ohio's 11th to do that. Fantastic. All right, Congressman, we're up to the the lightning round, which typically we like to think is a little bit of fun. Um, So four questions, quick answers. There's no wrong answer. Um, Our readers, our listeners, a little bit of a sense of of you as the person. So first, favorite Baltimorean of all time? Thurgood Marshall. Good one. Uh, Favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Hmm. Chutzpah. Excellent. That is a great answer. Um, favorite Jewish food or restaurant? Bagel and lox. Bagel and lox. Can't go wrong with a bagel and lox. Do you have a particular pl- bagel place you like? Uh, no, my wife usually picks them out. So I don't okay. know. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and then the last one is anything you've read that you recently or not so recently that you highly recommend for our listeners? Absolutely. The Constitution of the United States of America. You know, um, I think it behooves all of us to look at what's enshrined in that and to look at what we have become as a society. We're so far away in many respects. You know, I often think of the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and the days that all of those delegates and elected officials were locked away in Constitution Hall trying to figure out what kind of constitution they could produce. And, you know, legend has it that Ben Franklin um, walked out once the constitution had been adopted onto the streets of Philadelphia. And a woman came up to him and said, Dr. Franklin, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? Is it a monarchy or a republic? And he said, ma'am, it is a republic if you can keep it. Well, we almost lost it on January the 6th, and I think it would behoove all of us to kind of just take a moment or two and look back at what they created in that document and to see how close or how far away we are today so that we have some sense of what we have to do going forward. With that, Congressman, thank you so much for joining the podcast. We look forward to having you back again soon, uh, and we appreciate all the work you're doing on all our behalfs to, to keep this a more civil dialogue and a more perfect union. So, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Wow, Rich, really like that. Really thoughtful conversation. Uh, a lot of things I hadn't thought about before. And that's what we're really all about here on the Jewish Insider Limited Liability Podcast. So if you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because that's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.